The China and Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa-China Reporting Project at Witt University in Johannesburg. The ACRP promotes balanced, considered reporting on Africa-China relations through innovative training programs held throughout the year. More information at africachinareporting.co.za. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden, the senior China-Africa researcher at the South African Institute of International Affairs in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, last month we were reminded of the security challenges that confront Chinese companies and the Chinese presence in Africa as a whole when three uh, miners or workers, Chinese workers, were kidnapped in Nigeria's Osun state. And it's interesting because Nigeria has become an emerging epicenter of kidnappings and piracy uh, and, and, and just general kind of the small-scale terrorism that we're seeing, not just because of Boko Haram, but lots of other factors are coming into play. Uh, earlier this summer in Edo state, that's in southern Nigeria, uh, back in July, uh, more kidnappings of Chinese workers happened there. And that, again, it brings up this issue of, as we see Chinese kind of spanning out into larger and larger parts of Africa, all for the most part, uh, you know, unsecured in that sense, the demand for security and private security is no doubt going to be going up. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. Yeah, this is a really important issue, um, not only from the Chinese side where, you know, working working in in countries with informal economies and, you know, kind of uh, institutions that, that are occasionally, you know, not 100% coherent, that, that's one big problem for, for on the Chinese side. But on the African side, you're also dealing with security for Africans, um, including how foreign security companies um, working for foreign companies are supposed to be interacting with, the, with local law enforcement and the police and the army and the government. Um, and that, that puts a lot of Africans potentially in crossfire situations, um, raising a lot of not only human security issues, but, but even geopolitical issues as well. And it's interesting because this is also part of that discussion about the Chinese learning curve in Africa, uh, where again, they haven't been there for very long. Let's say the, the current wave is 10 to 15 years of their engagement. But Western organizations, U.S., European, and to some extent the Japanese, have been there much, much longer and have learned how to do this. So when I was living in the Congo, uh, we worked with the G4S, which is a very well-known private security company. And just the whole routines of security were something that were well-established and deeply ingrained in NGOs, in government, in you know foreign stakeholders in Africa. It's still relatively new uh, for the Chinese, and they haven't felt they needed it for a long time, but that is now starting to change as we've seen. So we had the opportunity to speak with one of the world's leading experts on this, and there are not many. It's very interesting because in China, and it's hard for people who are not there to understand how difficult it is to penetrate the worlds of security, the military, the PLA, and in these foreign policy circles, particularly today, as China becomes increasingly inward focused and more suspicious of outsiders. So Dr. Alessandro Arduino is the co-director of the Security and Crisis Management Program at the Shanghai Academy of Social Sciences, and he is one of truly the few foreigners 
who is able to, to see inside this world. Uh, he recently completed a research project with the China Africa Research Initiative at Johns Hopkins University, where he traveled to Djibouti as part of a broader look at the growing presence of Chinese private security companies in Africa. Uh, unfortunately, Kobus, you weren't uh, able to, to join us for the discussion, uh, but I had a really fascinating discussion with him. And we started with the recent kidnappings in Nigeria as a good case study for what the Chinese are confronting in Africa. You know, a few weeks ago, there were three Chinese miners who were kidnapped by attackers in in Nigeria's Osun state. And it brings up again the vulnerability that the Chinese have by being present in a lot of places where other investors won't go. What is the need in your assessment based on the fact that more and more Chinese do seem to be coming under uh, attack or being kidnapped or having problems in volatile places? How would you state the need for Chinese private security contracting forces in places like Africa? Yeah, as you mentioned, that's exactly one of the main reasons uh, for the existence uh, of uh, Chinese private security. In this respect, uh, when China starts to envision uh, the, the Belt and Road uh, with President Xi announcing it in 2013, uh, not many projects uh, were already on the ground. But now, 2019, we are seeing that there are a lot of projects already moving from blueprint to realization in areas that are subject to weak state control. In several parts of Africa, the interaction between China and Africa, not only in economic or, or, or military term, let's say, require a complex equation that uh, the private security company variable is quite important into that. Let's say, as you mentioned, kidnap for ransom is, is a big problem, not only in Africa, but in several other parts of the BRI that range from Pakistan to even South America. And in this respect, uh, the, the risk assessment and mitigation provided by private security, all together with international and Chinese insurance company, are an integrating part uh, of uh, the security need of the BRI. Uh, this, uh, let's say, uh, in the African continent, differentiate quite uh, to the other part of the BRI in which the private security, Chinese private security, are called to protect Chinese interests. Uh, in this respect, uh, in Africa, uh, there is, uh, let's say, need for a new kind of. Uh, security, conflict resolution, and economic development that move the idea of private security from the precedent private security that in the 60s uh, were, let's say, uh, operating uh, in, in the African continent. And I'm referring to mercenary, the mercenary stigma that is still there since the post-colonial conflict. In this respect, uh, Chinese companies are, are a newcomer and they are trying to speed up uh, their effort in protecting uh, the Chinese worker in the area. In some area, there are high risk, as you mentioned, the, the kidnapping of the three uh, Chinese workers, as it happened in the past, even before the, the BRI in Africa. And uh, this is quite a new thing, uh, considering the fact that uh, China has been in Africa for quite a long time. And at the time, uh, from the 70s, uh, up to now, basically, uh, Chinese were organizing themselves uh, with local militia to protect themselves. 
now the market for force is evolving, is growing bigger, and there are more professional companies. And among these, of course, Chinese PSC cooperating with international private security companies. Yeah, let's talk about, just define our terms here. When we talk about a Chinese private security contractor here, what immediately comes to mind for me is the American, uh, you know, the former Blackwater frontier advisors. These are the kind of famous American private security contractors of ex-military guys. They're big buff. They're wearing black. They're decked out. They've got earpieces. You know, they're, they're, they mean business. These are the guys, the mercenaries that went to war in Iraq and things like that. Um, are that is that the same kind of thing we're talking about when we talk about Chinese private security contractors as well? No, it's, uh, it, it's quite different. Uh, as I was mentioning before, uh, uh, China private security company are involved in protecting uh, asset and personnel from Chinese state-owned company and Chinese private security company. So we are talking about private security, not private military. Uh, let's say the differentiation between private security and private military is still a thin uh, gray area, and you can switch from one to the other quite easily, but definitely Private military means that uh, a company is engaging in active kinetic action. So with some of the case, uh, as you mentioned, with Blackwater, but not all, because also Blackwater was providing security for the United States uh, foreign service, for example, in a passive stance. Uh, while private security are just passive guarding, a case of Chinese is guarding uh, personal infrastructure, or protect VIP against kidnap and ransom, or protecting vessel against pirate. Uh, as I mentioned before, one of the peculiar dimension of the African continent is the fact that it still carry the stigma of the post-colonial conflict. During the time, uh, let's say the Blackwater of the time was a company called Executive Outcome that was extremely famous uh, or infamous, if you want to say, because was operating uh, with uh, a small number, but highly trained, heavily armed mercenary in support uh, of uh, local government uh, to quell internal problem or external problem. They were heavily armed. They were even operated a Russian uh, attack helicopter, Mi-24, and at the time, uh, all the focus up to now was on this kind of company. But then uh, uh, during my research, uh, uh, I came in contact with an expert of the time, uh, uh, Sean Clearly. And uh, in uh, his, his previous paper, he mentioned that uh, the EO, Executive Outcome, or other company like Sandline, or now the, the one that you referenced, Blackwater, that is no more existing with that name, uh, it was just a few of private military company among the hundreds of private security company that were operating just in passive capacity as a guard. And if we move from the 60s to the 90s, and if we go to, for example, Angola alone, there were hundreds of private security company. Now, for example, high-level private security company in Africa can be found in South Africa who have thousands of companies, and hundreds are already operating outside South Africa and all over the continent. So, at a say, for example, at a CNUC or a China National Petroleum Corporation, CNPC facility in, say, South Sudan or Mali, 
Um, one would expect there'd be some security there around the facility to prevent either some of the instances that have happened in other countries where there are terrorist attacks or, as you've talked about, the capturing of high-level individuals. Should we assume that outside of a CNPC facility in South Sudan that those would be private Chinese security contractors, armed and trained? Uh, let's say, first of all... Uh, I'm just as an example... Yeah, operate uh, uh, not only with Chinese, but with international company that can range from G4S, Control Risk, Dyncorp, and so on. Then uh, there is uh, another question of what the Chinese private security company can do by law, by the Chinese law outside China, is the fact that technically they cannot carry weapons. So they are a security manager that are in between uh, armed personnel these armed personnel can be former uh, Western Special Forces, ranging from SAS to SEAL or whatever, or local armed militia coming from the army, from the police, uh, that are uh, contracted, subcontracted by uh, the Chinese private security company. So it depends a lot uh, on the law of the country, on the maybe sometimes the lack of law. Uh, in the specific country, and to the fact that only few Chinese companies have the authorization uh, to to carry weapons outside China. As I was mentioning before, one of the few cases uh, is uh, in East Africa in anti-piracy convoy protecting uh, mostly CNOC uh, vessel and uh, vessel that carry uh, oil and gas to uh, to China against pirates. That's one of the few cases uh, that the Chinese contractor can be armed. Otherwise, basically, they are a security manager in between the armed guard and the Chinese company who contract them. That's very interesting that the Chinese law does not allow for people to carry weapons outside of the country. I know that inside China, there are obviously very, very tight gun control laws, as there are in most countries, uh, the United States being an exception to that. Uh, but outside of the country, you would think that they would be looser. But so I, maybe you could tell us a little bit about the origins of that law or what the thinking is. Is it because that that may conflict with, say, the non-interference doctrine, that if you have armed contractors who are going into other countries, that could be construed as interfering in the internal affairs of other countries? Is it because that the Communist Party doesn't like any armed entity, whether it's domestic or abroad? What would be your thinking as to why the, the Chinese government doesn't want armed forces outside of the country? Again, inside I understand, but outside, even to protect its own people and, and, and property. Well, let's say uh, this is not quite uncommon or is not a peculiarity of the People's Republic of China. Several countries, starting in Europe, for example, from my country, Italy, uh, they ban uh, national carry weapon or getting engaged in military activity that are not sanctioned by the government. So let's say in this case, uh, having contractors like from United States and so on, uh, is not the norm. If we want to look just at the law, even the Russian Federation forbid for Russian private entity and individual to operate an armed outside uh, its own country. That's not the case. But even according to this kind of law, in case you use weapon and you come back, then uh, you can be subject to detention. Then, of course, the principle of non-interference is still there in China-international relations. It's one of the five pillars of China uh, international relation policy, but it's changing. It's changing very fast, uh, and uh, in the future, uh, I definitely see or foresee some change uh, in the law uh, for the Chinese private security firm operating abroad. 
this at the moment uh, is a bonus of uh, the, the Chinese law because uh, all the Chinese law related to PSC, and I refer to the first one, uh, that is in 1993. So you can see the whole security market inside China is a quite new market compared to the one in the US, in the UK, and so on. This law has been updated in 2010, and it's just referred to the operation of Chinese private security company inside China, not outside. So let's say that uh, Beijing is very well aware of the fact that there is need of an update. But then uh, if you are going to have uh, a Blackwater moment, like the Nisur Bloody Sunday, in which uh, Blackwater contractor discharged their weapon uh, on uh, innocent civilian, then if you are going to have a private security firm, basically that is private, but still Chinese, with Chinese personnel, uh, killing innocent people, then it will be very difficult to Beijing to still sell the win-win narrative of the Belt and Road Initiative. So I'm sure that up to now, not only from the legal point of view, but uh, from the operational point of view, like uh, NDRC, SASAC and so on, are looking uh, in depth in how to adapt, modernize and to engage and shape the, the Chinese market for force outside yeah. China. It's interesting because you're right. They're in a very difficult position because if they do have a Blackwater moment, that obviously would have an adverse effect on the perception of the Chinese, which is already fragile in many parts of the world. Uh, so, so that's a limitation. So should we assume then that high-level individuals, facilities are being guarded by uh, Western, international, South African private security forces since the Chinese do have more limitations on what they can do? On that, uh, still, uh, it's a matter, in my personal opinion, of capability. One of the set of private security firm and especially more on private military firm uh, is the concept of plausible deniability. If something happens, then it's not the state, it's not the country, it's just a private entity. You can just look uh, not long ago when uh, this case was uh, in, in the Syrian border, more than 200 uh, Russian mercenaries were basically obliterated in a few minutes uh, by US-led uh, uh, bombing. And uh, during that time, there was not uh, an increase of tension uh, between Russia and the United States because they were not considered uh, enemy combatant, they were not considered Russian soldiers, they were just mercenary at the time. But uh, if we move it back, the narrative, to a Chinese private security firm with Chinese citizens, uh, then uh, I think it would be very, very hard uh, uh, to sell it just as a private entity. And as I mentioned before, uh, I didn't find uh, any kind of confirmation to this, but uh, especially from the West, there is this perception, there is a kind of hidden agenda in some of the Chinese private security firm moving abroad. You One of these reasons may be because most of the personnel, basically the ratio is 70-30 from PLA, from PAP, or even from the police. But just because uh, the pool of the person uh, uh, that want to work in this area come from uh, this uh, this field, and it always happened in the other private security internationally. Now you mentioned that Huaxing Zhongan is the only or one of the few uh, Chinese private security companies that has been given permission to carry weapons. Uh, what kind of weapons would they be carrying? Are these light arms, or are they again like the private militaries? They have a range of weapons that are quite sophisticated to protect their assets. 
Oh, technically, it's it's light automatic weapon on uh, onto that, uh, uh, but it's strictly controlled. And Hua Xinjiang with uh, few other, and we are talking, I think, three now uh, Chinese private security firm. They are abiding uh, by an international agreed code of conduct uh, that is uh, ICOCA. ICOCA is based uh, in uh, Geneva. Uh, is supported by several countries, especially by the Swiss government. Uh, International Code of Conduct uh, also is supported by the Red Cross. Uh, and uh, abiding by this Code of Conduct, these companies, starting with Hua Xinjiang-An, are certified that the use of the weapon, the handling, and all the procedure are done to avoid any kind of uh, damage uh, on the stakeholder abroad and avoiding with this uh, negative spillover. So let's say in order to shape the, the market for force uh, certification uh, and uh, abiding by this kind of code of conduct uh, is one of the steps that have to be taken. Of course, I'm not so naive to think that only the hidden end of market uh, can, uh, can play a role into this, but definitely it's a good start. Uh, another very important part is when you choose uh, your subcontractor. So as I mentioned before, uh, a lot of Chinese private security companies use local militia in Africa and choosing uh, the right subcontractor, the right person in doing the job uh, is one of the most important part because uh, the wrong person, uh, the wrong tribal affiliation can create huge problem that can reverberate uh, all over the, the state, African state uh, and all over the BRI. It happened in the recent past in Afghanistan when there was a uh, choice of a wrong warlord, for example, from some private security firm or private military firm that created more problem than solution uh, to the war effort. But how would they go about doing that? Because you go into places like the Eastern Congo or South Sudan, and the factional politics are extraordinarily complicated. I mean, this is not something that you can pick up just by showing up on the ground. And who to trust is very difficult as well. You need people who have been there for a long time who will say, you know, this guy, he can, you can trust him. This guy, you can't. So when you talk about how Chinese are subcontracting to local you know, militias and warlords and whatnot, and I presume in places like the Eastern DRC where the Chinese have very vast mining operations, they must be doing that. Otherwise, they wouldn't be able to continue working. So how, based on your research, have you, do you have any insights on how they go about fielding the various options in order to consider which of the militias and, and warlords to partner with? Uh, on that, uh, as I mentioned before, for example, ICOCA have uh, a wide range of uh, company, international company that operated for a long time in Africa, uh, certified by them, uh, and they are trying to matchmaking this company with the requirement of the Chinese company, uh, providing uh, this kind of solution, the one uh, that match the right subcontractor that is not going to create more problems than uh, avoiding uh, already the, the problem that you find. Of course, uh, as I mentioned before, Africa, more than 50 countries, there are different uh, necessity and security solutions. Like we move from Nigeria, it's the new, in the Delta area, we have maritime insecurity, kidnap and ransom. Kenya, we have a quite diffuse security, but then there is an exponential increase uh, 
uh, in need for security service for the terrorist threat posed by al-Shabaab. If we talk about, uh, as you mentioned, South Sudan, South Sahel, or even Central Africa, the ongoing conflict, there is a, there a mix uh, present of, between private security firm and private military firm. And then uh, there is uh, quite difficult to define which is a private security or, or a private military. And then if we move to the extreme, to Somalia, then definitely threat from terrorism and warlordism uh, it's, uh, is a very big problem. So uh, in this respect, back to your question, one of the issues is the fact that uh, the private security firm local and international that work in Africa are not only providing uh, armed security service, but several of high level one provide intelligence service. What I mean by that, they provide that kind of answer to the question that, uh, that you mentioned, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, they even provide uh, the, the solution to find uh, the best uh, partner for uh, contracting. One of the biggest problems uh, that the Chinese face to that uh, is not uh, a lack of resource, uh, but uh, is the willingness to pay for uh, the right service. This kind of service don't come cheap. They are quite expensive if you want to train a foreign armed force and at the same time if you want proper uh, private intelligence. So for the company, especially the SOE, who are already adapted to invest outside and in high risk area, that's not a big issue. But with the big SOE that for the first time are venturing outside China, then the willingness to pay for this kind of service is very low. They tend just uh, to use more uh, local forces or even just normal Chinese private security company. But this is a recipe for disaster. Yeah, you would think so, because the Chinese increasingly in South Africa, Kenya, Cameroon, Nigeria, many other places, uh, people have been complaining that they are seen as targets now. That you're, it used to be that if you were white, you were seen as the guy who was going to be shaken down for money. Now, increasingly, it is Chinese. And there's always a suspicion, we don't know for a fact, that every time there's a, a kidnapping, uh, very soon after the Chinese are released, as it was the case in Osun, within three to four days of the kidnapping in Osun just a few weeks ago, uh, they were released. Uh, this brings back memories of the French, who oftentimes negotiated from the state to the militias to, to pay for ransom. Do you have any insight as to whether or not the Chinese pay for uh, ransoms in order to, to get their hostages back and freed or how that happens? And, and, and that, again, ties to the interaction between the private security contractors who are protecting them and then obviously the state that gets involved to free people if there are incidents like that. Technically and legally, there is no willingness uh, to pay uh, for ransom and to interact with terrorists and kidnapper. Practically, there are already several uh, uh, Chinese uh, insurance firms that are specializing in the niche market of kidnapping for ransom. Uh, the part that is prevent the kidnapping and the part that is negotiating the price, delivery and the release. This uh, has been done not uh, in a vacuum, it's not done alone by this Chinese uh, insurance and private firm, but it's done in cooperation with international companies that already experienced for, uh, for decades this kind uh, of uh, business inside the market for force. And I'm referring especially to a company coming from the United Kingdom. 
this problem that you mentioned uh, of kidnapping and fast release of uh, Chinese hostages is not only common in several African states, but uh, is increasingly uh, worrisome, uh, getting common uh, along several areas of the BRI uh, and even in South America. In that area, there is a specialization uh, of kidnapping that moved from kidnapping someone for several years and asking very high uh, ransom, as it happened uh, in Venezuela, in Colombia, and now more in areas like Brazil, uh, and it's happening in Nigeria at the same time with the same modus operandi, the fact that someone is getting kidnapped and released after even one or two days for a very limited amount of money, and that's called express kidnapping. Uh, country like Nigeria are at the helm in statistical term uh, of this kind of activity. Yeah, this presents a real problem for President Xi Jinping, because going back a couple of years ago, uh, there was a Chinese national who was taken hostage by ISIS and then killed. And I was in China at the time, and it was covered in the beginning, but then people started to get really angry on social media that how come the government isn't doing more to protect Chinese individuals overseas? This happened also in, I think it was South Sudan, or it may have been Sudan, where a group of workers were kidnapped. And there was growing political pressure at home for that China now being the great country that it says it is, must have the ability to to protect its people and its property overseas. This precipitated in part the passage of the, I think, 2015 uh, anti-terrorism law that did allow or does allow uh, foreign deployment of Chinese forces into other countries in order to protect people and property. So I'm curious about the politics of, of kidnapping and how, say, for example, a firm like Hua Xinjiang'an, who is capable of carrying weapons and presumably there to help prevent these kinds of kidnappings, how do they interact with the PLA in order to save you, you know, people and property overseas so as to prevent the type of political headaches that Xi Jinping doesn't need at home? Yeah, in, uh, in this you are correct. I think that what you said uh, about the Chinese citizen that was captured uh, by the self-proclaimed Islamic State uh, and later on uh, allegedly beheaded, uh, all together with another terrorist attack, uh, if I recall correct, was uh, in Bamako, the capital of Mali, That's right. where three official from uh, Chinese construction company, railway company, if I recall correct, were killed by terrorists. That was a defining moment. Why? Because uh, before uh, it was already happening that Chinese worker, engineers especially, were kidnapped, some were killed, but the news uh, was not taking so much traction at home. Uh, with the fact that the Chinese uh, perception abroad increased, uh, also there was an increasing perception to the fact that uh, uh, they are, were becoming valuable target for kidnapping and ransom. Uh, the lack of willingness uh, to uh, provide some kind uh, of uh, negotiation of support, uh, then fired back at home, especially on the new media, uh, because uh, there is started a movement of kind of Chinese life matters. So in this respect, uh, China since then, uh, and by China I mean Beijing, is more assertive in uh, protecting uh, Chinese citizen abroad. To your question, that is a big question, how uh, private security firms interact with PLA in this regard, and especially after the white paper of the 2015, there is not a law, there is not a procedure that 
is known up to now. Uh, what I can say is that Beijing is working very actively in framing the law that regulate private military and security industry. It's very active on that, especially the integration of security theory and law with the example taken from the past, not only from Africa in the 1690s, but from Iraq and Afghanistan. Of course, uh, it's a different time. Uh, for example, in terms of uh, protecting Chinese life, the PLA Navy, uh, with the evacuation of Chinese citizen uh, workers in Libya, and more recently in Yemen, already showed uh, a very high level of capability in protecting and Chinese life and uh, uh, saving Chinese people abroad. They even saved uh, uh, other foreign nationals. But then now there is a question, how many Chinese nationals you need to save outside in turn to have the chance to call the PLA Navy? And at the time, uh, you still didn't have boot on the ground. You didn't have Chinese soldiers roaming around the countries and so on. It was just uh, on the port activity. So in this respect, uh, uh, the, the question is uh, 20, 200, 2,000 Chinese citizens that have to be in uh, in a security problem to be saved for this state intervention. And then how you justify this uh, with the principle of non-interference that uh, is still there. So the relationship within private security insurance company, PLA, is something that uh, has been very actively discussed and we will see a lot of change in, uh, in the near future. One of the good change for companies, like as mentioned before, not only Huaxin Zhongan, but other high-level Chinese companies, is that now they don't offer only service of guarding, the guard in gated compound. They already provide logistic planning, uh, journey management in high-risk area, uh, armed executive protection uh, and maritime security in hostile environment. So we already seen uh, an upgrade uh, in terms of training, capability and, uh, and personnel. Should we expect a new law anytime soon or an update to white, a new white paper that will help give us an understanding of, of what direction th th this industry is going in? I, I do believe this is just a, a personal hunch, but definitely there will be, uh, and there is already uh, a lot of discussion in Beijing about practice uh, state perspective uh, in terms of how work uh, and develop the private security sector. And this is not done, as I mentioned before, alone, but there are, for example, ICOCA, uh, the Red Cross uh, and other government starting with uh, the Swiss Federation that are actively involving uh, with China in provide expertise, uh, training uh, and advice uh, that range from law regulation uh, and the interaction between military, private military and uh, the security industry at, at all. It's still interesting because for me, the government in many ways has set up an expectation that it is going to play a predominant role. And that comes out of, of course, Wolf Warrior 2. That was the popular movie from 2017. And I'll never forget the closing, you know, the closing shots of that, which is the, if you recall, the, the PLA Navy, you know, armada coming in to save Wu Jing and all of the, uh, you, know, the, the, you know, the damsel in distress in some ways. But it really did set an expectation in the eyes of many Chinese people that the PLA, uh, both the Navy and ground forces, have the ability and are capable now uh, of doing those kinds of interventions. And there's a political 
kind of payoff for doing it. Uh, I recall here in Vietnam, several years ago, there were anti-Chinese riots and disturbances, and the Chinese sent in buses and planes to get their nationals out. And rather than kind of going in quietly in the middle of the night, uh, you know, which would have been the more discreet way to kind of evacuate their people so that it's just, you know, out of sight, they came in in the middle of the day. And the buses went right through the streets of Saigon and right through Hanoi to get their nationals out. And there were CCTV cameras along the way. And it was a propaganda tool as well. And, and again, it's interesting just to see how all the different dimensions of this overseas security plays together. Propaganda, movie, expectations. Obviously, the private security contractors now are going to factor into that as well. So with all of that in the mix, where do you see this going in the future in the next, say, 12 to 24 months? Uh, let's say uh, that's. Uh, I don't have uh, your crystal, crystal ball. ball. You don't have your crystal ball. It's really, really difficult to uh, to mention this. Let's say that uh, Wolf Warrior, in practical term, uh, did uh, a lot of damage in term of over expectation. Yes, they did. Uh, most of the Chinese private security company moving abroad. Uh, they think about themselves just as the one depicted in the movie Wolf Warrior. And then one thing is the training that you have in China that is still a very safe country and there is no need of much guarding and private security. And something is something that you get when you move in area like Sahel, Somalia and so on, when you need the professional trained people that have been already working in that area and know the local necessity and solution. Let's say in the next uh, 12, 15 months, uh, what I can foresee is the fact that uh, there will be changes uh, in terms of how the training, uh, the interaction with the foreign company in terms of security foreign company will help uh, uh, Chinese company in working abroad. Still, the biggest problem, uh, as I mentioned before, uh, is uh, not finding the right company only, but it find uh, a client that is willing to pay uh, the correct amount of money and value that kind of service. Because like an insurance, uh, if you don't perceive a risk, you are not willing to subscribe to that insurance and basically you're just crossing the finger. Then if you move to some of the construction company that are the one that now carry most of the work uh, on the BRI, then uh, their profit is still uh, very tiny and diluted. So for them, afford a proper security company is quite still uh, a big issue. So basically, one of the uh, trends that I can foresee, a positive one, could be finding uh, a local company that work with a multinational international security company and all together get up to speed in terms of training and protection not only of the client but of the local stakeholders to avoid the negative spillover that the private security firm can ignite. Well, there we go. That was awesome. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. I could have gone on for three hours on this subject. I love it. <laughs> No, thank you for having me. Oh, and, I uh, think it's it's to, to mention uh, in the thank you that uh, I I'm really grateful uh, to the China Africa Research Initiative by John Hopkins size uh, that helped me uh, to uh, do my study oh. on the field uh, in Africa and especially when I was in Djibouti. Well, I hope that you uh, you come back to uh, to talk to us a little bit in the future about some of the research that you're doing for in Africa. You know, as you do more of this. I'm looking forward uh, when there will be the publication of the next book on it, or probably if we have to comment Wolf Warrior 3. 
Yes, we'll definitely do Wolf <laughs> Warrior 3. That will be it, you know. So, well, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Cobus, Dr. Arduino made a very important distinction that I think is lost on a lot of people who are new to this subject. There's a difference between private security and private armies. And what we're talking about with the Chinese here are, is private security. Private armies are the, remember those Blackwater guys with the, the automatic weapons dressed in black? And, they, and those are the kind of guys who are in, for the Americans in Afghanistan, in, in Iraq. That's not who we're talking about, for the most part, in, for the Chinese in Africa. We're talking about private security. For the most part, they're going to be unarmed. They're doing intelligence. And I thought it was absolutely fascinating what he was talking about, how so much of it is going to be working with local warlords and, and local stakeholders to find out intelligence of where to go, what to do, in part because the Chinese are heavily invested in places that are highly unstable. Think of the Eastern Congo, Mali, Chad, some of these places where insurgencies and instability are par for the course, and they need people who they can trust. So it's to me, this is actually not a bad thing. However, Kobus, and this is what I'd like to get your take on, the presence of security under any guise of foreigners engaging in security in Africa has a very loaded history. And, you, you know, so as the Chinese kind of step up their security presence and it becomes more visible, it could potentially rub people the wrong way. Yes, it could definitely turn political. And I mean, we have to note that so far China's security work in Africa the the, the security work run by by Chinese state institutions have mostly have not been run by state institutions to be you know to be to be more exact it, it's happened under the auspices of the UN um, you know so so generally you don't for example see the People's Liberation Army acting as itself in Africa they, they usually act as UN troops so this is a generally we've never seen that happen yes no, you're it's right. always been under a UN flag exactly yeah. exactly so so this is a big shift um, you know and the fact that that it's it's a shift that plays in uh, you know kind of in the space where multinationals are working and therefore where lots of private security companies are already active doesn't make it any less of a big shift. Um, and as we've seen many times, the Chinese come with a lot of additional political baggage. You know, kind of um, so having French private security around in West Africa for example isn't as notable, isn't as, you kind of, won't necessarily draw as much comment as it would be to have Chinese private security. Um, and I think this, this kind of weird double standard or you know, kind of the the kind of outsized amount of attention that Chinese involvement in in Africa draws is its own challenge, right? And we just to be clear, we may see a greater presence of Chinese private security companies, but we also may see Chinese stakeholders like CNPC, CNUC, the big oil companies, uh, engage the French, the Israelis, the South Africans, the the players who are already in the market. So it may not be that we see a lot of Chinese guys with earpieces and. And but you know they won't be armed for the most part because again it's against Chinese law except for one company, but for the most part that they might actually just use existing security companies. But there's definitely going to be a greater presence on security because it becomes a political liability not just to have security forces in Africa, but when Chinese workers are kidnapped back home in China, 